0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So around, somewhere around 90 A.D., you can imagine in a small, well it wasn't a small town, but it would have been a small church in a town called Smyrna on the coast of the Aegean, you can imagine a, a small group of believers huddled in an area ready to to gather to be the church. They would have been wearing tattered, worn clothes. They would have been hiding out for fear that their expression of love for Christ would have cost them their lives. This small group of persecuted believers in the church called Smyrna would have gathered one night, I imagine, and feeling down, feeling pressed, feeling squeezed, feeling as though everyone was against them, as their entire city seemed to hate them and be persecuting them. And then you can imagine in that moment, in this gathering, that one of the believers in the circle would have pulled out a letter, a letter that had just come into town that day from the Apostle John, the last living apostle the Apostle John, they would have been familiar with him. He would have probably been to Smyrna many times. but They hadn't seen him for a while because he'd been uh, exiled on the island of Patmos. But John had written a letter to the churches in Asia Minor, including Smyrna. So you can imagine your heart would just leap with excitement as this letter was pulled out. Uh, and as it was beginning to be read, your heart ex- gets even more excited because you realize it's not from John, it's written down by John, but it's actually from the risen Christ himself ascended in glory at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus had spoken to John a specific message for your church. And then you hear the words, Smyrna, and you realize that not only has Christ spoken to his church, he has spoken to your church and has specific things to say to you. Can you imagine the excitement that that would have for you as a believer? And this is what the letter says. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. It says this. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, as that letter would have been read in the church at Smyrna, there would have most likely been a young man there, probably somewhere in the age of of 20 to 27 years old, and this young man's name was Polycarp. Polycarp would have been a disciple of John the Apostle, and he would soon become the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And I can imagine Polycarp sitting, listening to this letter to the persecuted church, this letter to Smyrna, and I can imagine him wondering to himself, I wonder if I will have to go through this persecution that John and Jesus is speaking of. Well, sure enough, about 70 years later, Polycarp, when he was in his 90s, in about 150 AD, church history records that Polycarp himself was actually martyred for the faith. There was many people that had tried to to convince Polycarp to recant his faith, to say Caesar was Lord in order to save his own life, but he refused. In the encyclical epistle of the church at Smyrna, in this church history, it states this, and I'm just going to read it. They told Polycarp, what harm is there in saying Lord Caesar and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such an occasion? And so make sure of your safety. But he first gave them no answer. And then when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him and cast him with violence out of the chariot insomuch that he dislocated his leg. But without being disturbed and as if suffering nothing, he went pleasantly forward with all haste and was was conducted to the stadium where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being heard. The proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, "'Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say away with the atheists,' meaning Christians. "'Swear, and I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ.'" Polycarp declared, "'Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior?' The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beasts, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Famously, thou threatenest me with fire, which burnest for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou bring forth what you will? What brings a man like Polycarp to a place? where he is standing before all of the power and the might of the Roman army and the Roman Empire, ready to be burned alive. And he literally says, bring it on, with a calm composure. The story goes on to note that they were going to nail his hands, and he said, you don't need to nail my hands, I'm not going anywhere. So they didn't. And he stood composed as his life was taken. What brings a man to a point where he can suffer like that? I want to know. I believe it was what was written in this letter. We know that Polycarp, this man, was in the room when this letter would have been read. That the words of Christ to the church of Smyrna were heard by Polycarp. When Polycarp was... Burned at the stake, people, it said, were in awe of the way that he suffered. He suffered differently than anyone else. Rome killed all kinds of people publicly in the gladiatorial games and all kinds of different places, but something about the way Polycarp suffered stood out to the people that were watching. Now listen, one of the greatest witnesses to the gospel's supernatural work is the way that Christians walk through tribulation. It's one of our greatest witnesses. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Whenever uh, there is state sponsored persecution of Christians, the gospel explodes, partly because the way Christians suffer is supernatural. There's nothing like it, it's unheard of. In this letter that we just read, Jesus gives three commands specifically to the church of Smyrna. First, he says, not to fear. Then he says to be faithful to the end and to death even. And then lastly, he says, verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. The implication of this letter is that if you listen to what Jesus is saying in this letter, that you will not only be faithful to the end, even unto death, but that you will do so without fear. That's an incredible promise. So whatever are within the contents of this letter that we're studying together in Revelation chapter 2, 8 through 11, within it carries the key to going through tribulation, not only to the end faithfully, but in the absence of fear. Like Polycarp, with a calm composure and even possibly joy. What are the contents of this letter? We have the privilege of sitting this morning and hearing the same words that God spoke, that Christ spoke directly to the church of Smyrna. Are you guys excited for that? Are you with me? Okay. We're in a series right now. You guys are in a series right now um, through the seven letters, obviously, of the book of Revelation. And Jeremy last week gave an introduction to this section of the book of Revelation. I just want to review a few things for you so you understand kind of where we're at in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation was written down by John the Apostle, the last living apostle, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was what was called a circulatory letter. Circulatory meaning it was, it was meant to be passed from church to church to church. If you look at the seven churches of Asia Minor on a map, they make a circle. The reason they make a circle is because there was a circuit. The, the primary Roman road went through those cities. And so it was meant to encourage all of the cities that it went through, including us. Now, primarily, the book of Revelation is actually a pastoral letter from Christ to his church. Isn't that amazing? It's an encouragement from the pastor, not the Pope, not Paul, not John, not Peter, but Christ, who is the pastor of his church. And he writes to encourage them in the midst of suffering, tribulation, and struggle. It's a beautiful letter. It's a beautiful letter. There are futurist implications in the book of Revelation, and there is nothing wrong with looking at those, but we need to remember that the the book of Revelation was written to a real group of people for a real reason, at a real moment in time, in real history. And so we need to ask ourselves, what was this letter meant to encourage this particular group of Christians in Smyrna for John wrote this letter from the island of Patmos, which was a penal colony in which he was uh, stranded on for preaching the gospel. And on this penal colony, on the Lord's Day, it says in Revelation chapter 1, he was caught up into a vision where he saw Christ, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ in his glory. And it's a beautiful thing. We don't have time to read it, but I encourage you to go back and look at it in chapter 1 because it's really the nucleus of the encouragement of the book. The nucleus of the encouragement of the book of Revelation is that Jesus won and he's going to win again. Amen? It's good news. The vision of Christ in his ascended state creates the backdrop for all of the letters to the seven churches. Each of the letters draws back to some of the pictures of Jesus in his glory. Now, let me just talk briefly about some historical background about the city of Smyrna because it matters. It matters. Smyrna was a city just the north of Ephesus. Ephesus was on the Aegean, uh, on the western side of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Smyrna would have been just above Ephesus, and it was actually a strategic city. It was strategic because the port was directly across uh, was directly across from Athens, which was considered the gate to Europe. So it was a very affluent, a very important city. The west coast of Asia Minor were the more rich and affluent cities. The ones in the east were more of sort of the country bumpkin type of a, 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 a cities, if you will. It was said to be the most beautiful city in Asia Minor, sort of a tropical feel there. And believe it or not, it's actually still in existence today. Now it's a modern city called Ismar. And so um, around the, the ruins uh, of the Greco-Roman world, you see you know massive buildings. There's a thriving city there still. Uh, in Turkey today. But Smyrna in the day of the early church was known for being the birthplace of the emperor cult in Asia Minor. The emperor cult basically was the religion of Rome. It was Romanism. The idea was, was that Roma, the goddess Roma, had personified herself into the empire of Rome. So in other words, Rome was a god. Rome was a god and it was a she and she fit right into the pantheon of all the other gods that the Romans worshipped. And guess who her husband was? Caesar. Because Caesar is God. A god. So Caesar, the husband of Roma, creates this massive worship system called the Roman cult. And Smyrna was the first place, they pr- prided themselves, I mean the first place to make a temple to the goddess Roma and to the god Caesar. Tiberius in 193 BC. So you can imagine what kind of a climate that would create uh, for the Christians who came in not saying uh, Caesar is Lord but came in saying Kaiser Curios, Jesus is Lord. Instantly put them at odds. And what is the church at Smyrna facing? I want you to see this in verse 8. It says, The angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He says, I know your, what? Tribulation. We're very familiar with that word, usually in the context of arguing about whether we're going to get raptured before it or during it. But tribulation, make no mistake, is a reality for the majority of Christians in history. Most Christians will have tribulation. So Jesus, in this letter, he points that the primary issue for the church of Smyrna is that they are having tribulation. I want to talk about the Greek word of tribulation. It's Philipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S, Philipsis, which is a combination of two Greek words. The first one is philebo, which is to crush, press together, squash, hem in, compress, or squeeze. The other word it's a, a combination of is phileo, which is to break. Originally expressed sheer physical pressure. On a man. So you put the two together and you get philipsis: anguish, affliction, distress. The idea is a deep degree of pressure and pressing on these Christians in Smyrna. Okay? This does not refer to minor inconveniences. This does not refer to I have to wear a mask to church. Or I can't give someone a hug. Or I didn't have a parking spot at the grocery store. Or Mitch didn't play a song I liked. This refers to a deep Pressure. Where literally, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this in your life, like you don't want to get out of bed in the morning because your life is hell. Everything about the life of the Christians in Smyrna was hard. There was an intense pressure which forced them to wait on the Lord. And by the way, I heard someone say this the other day you know, waiting on the Lord is only waiting on the Lord if you don't have any other options. And that's when it's the hardest. You're pressed in on every side. There is no out. There is no credit card to use. There is no back line. There is no go to the ER. There is no call for help. It's just you asking God to help you. It's the only way. That's what waiting on the Lord looks like. And that's the kind of pressure these Smyrnian Christians were under. It's the kind of pressure that Christ ministers to them in. Let's talk about the shape of their tribulation. There's four particular pressures that was on the church in Smyrna. Number one. Poverty from ostracism. Poverty from ostracism. Look at uh, verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So Christ points out the poverty of the church. And that's not metaphorical. These guys are literally broke. They're completely broke. The word poverty in the Greek implies lacking basic provision. So that's like, will we eat lunch today? Or Ever? Okay, this is not like, uh, you know, I wish I had a new couch and I don't. This is like, we don't even know if we have food for today. The church in Smyrna was dealing with deep systemic poverty, which is interesting because Smyrna was a rich city, a thriving city, a bustling city. But because of the persecution, they were not allowed or able to uh, take part in commerce. Nobody would give them a job. They couldn't sell their goods. They were ostracized by their community. Therefore, they were broke. Because the church was poor, or because the Christians were poor, the church was poor. Now, we don't really know anything about this in the West, but I'm not here to make you feel guilty about that. Praise the Lord. But there are many Christians, particularly our Christian brothers who live in the Middle East, that once they declare that they are a follower of Christ, their family disowns them. They can't get a job, and they are persecuted and sometimes poor, oftentimes poor. This is a reality for many Christians. When Jesus said count the cost, oftentimes the cost of being a Christian is poverty. And this very, 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 this very well may be a reality for us in our lifetime. There very well may be a point where there is a deep financial cost for declaring Christ. could happen. The second thing that's pressing them is their persecution from Romanism. The Romans referred to the Christians as atheists. Did you know that? The reason was because the Christians refused to worship their Greek pantheon. They refused to go into their mall of cult worship, their mall of gods and temples to everything you could imagine and worship. They worshipped one God through the person of Jesus Christ. So they considered them atheists. The Pax Romana, which was considered the peace of Rome, Rome was the light of, supposed to bring peace to the whole earth. It was their utopian vision. The Pax Romana was based on this simple idea that the only way that works is if Caesar is Lord. And anything that threatens the idea of Caesar being Lord is a threat to the Pax Romana. It's a, it's, a, it's a threat to the peace of Rome. And the Christians were threatening that because they refused to say Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. They refused to say it. So many of them were eaten in arenas by lions, burned, alive, killed in brutal ways because they were seen as a threat to Rome. So they're dealing with constant persecution from the Roman cult. Thirdly, they're dealing with slander from Jews. Look at verse 9. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander or blasphemy, it could be translated, of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but our synagogue of Satan. Now, there was an interesting relationship between Christians and Jews at this particular point in history. You see, Christians avoided persecution for the first 30 years of Christianity because they fell under the umbrella of, of the Jewish religion. The Jews had a pass. They had a pass from saying Caesar is Lord because um, the Romans understood the Jewish uh, monotheism, monotheism of worshiping Yahweh only. So as long as Christians could hide under the umbrella of Judaism, they were fine. But the Jews started to get tired of the Christians. And so they actually at one point abandoned Christianity and started to actually say slanderous words, throwing them out in the cold to Rome. There were caricatures of Christianity that Jews would mockingly state about them, such as incest. Because they called themselves brother and sister, they mockingly said that Christians were incestuous. They called them cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh of Christ and the, drinking the blood of Christ. They, they uh, accused them of drowning their children because they baptized kids in the water. And of course, they believed that they were polytheists, that they worshipped multiple gods because of their claim that Jesus was in fact Lord. So this was the, the tension between the Jews and the Christians. And Jesus refers to them harshly as the synagogue of Satan. Satan. Now, this isn't anti-Semitic. This isn't uh, speaking out against Jews. This is speaking out against false Jews. Because as Romans tells us, there's true Judaism, which is part of our faith. There's true Jews and there's false Jews. These Jews were ultimately carrying out the will of Satan, which is to destroy the church because he hates the church. And then lastly, the, the last pressure on the church in Smyrna was a future and impending persecution and possible death. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer, so in other words, you're about to go through something. You're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. So now Jesus is prophesying to them that they are going to have a, some kind of a period of time where they're going to be literally in prison. So this is not a very comfortable situation that the church at Smyrna is in. They are considered the persecuted church. This is the letter to the persecuted church. They are systematically being squeezed and pressed from every side. Jewish, Roman, Greek, everyone is pressing in on them. They have no allies, no friends. And it's in this moment that the letter of Christ comes to bring comfort to them. So what is the comfort? What is the encouragement of Christ for this church? And for you and I, for anyone this morning that's dealing with tribulation. You know, the the Christian life is full of what appear to be contradictions, isn't it? It's full of them. You know, for example, poverty, when you're a Christian, actually means riches. Death, when you're a Christian, it actually means life, doesn't it? Physical defeat is actually spiritual victory. I have seen people on their deathbeds, minutes from taking their last breath, be more rich and more free and more alive than I've ever experienced. Because Christianity is counterintuitive, because we are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. And it's this premise that Jesus uses to encourage this church. There's no better example of this counterintuitive reality than Jesus Christ himself, right? He came into this world, and even though he was poor as dirt, he was the owner of the universe, (laughs) He came into this world, and even though he appeared to be defeated on the cross, he was actually victorious. Even though he appeared to be dead, he actually was more alive than he'd ever been. And in the same way, this church in Smyrna appears to be poor, but they're actually rich. And they appear to be facing imminent death at the hands of Rome, but they're actually facing eternal life because of the crown of Christ. And they are seemingly defeated, but they are actually victorious. And this is the encouragement of Christ to his church. And it's the encouragement for us today. It's the encouragement that allows us as Christians to suffer unlike any other people group in history. So I just want to talk about just two of these counterintuitive realities that Jesus is pointing out to this church. And that'll be the rest of our time. So let's start with the first one. The first counterintuitive reality that Jesus... Is pointing out to these guys is this. Being ostracized by this world means a deep and eternal connection to the fellowship of Christ's suffering. We'll unpack that. You know, it's it's amazing how much more we can do as humans when we don't feel alone. I am totally a wimp when I'm by myself. Sometimes I go out trail running by myself and I I hear something in the bushes. I'm not going to lie, I cut my run short. I'm like, I don't want to get eaten by a cougar by myself. I could do it with other people, that's fine. We were not meant to do things alone. I mean, there's amazing things that we can do when we feel that we have brothers and sisters doing it with us, suffering with us. I think of brothers in arms, I think of people that are in the trenches in war, um, able to throw themselves on grenades because, why? Because they're with their brothers, with their sisters, and there's a camaraderie there. I remember training for my marathon years back and I had a good friend of mine, Forrest, and we had spent hours and hours and hours training together. We'd gone on all of these runs and we were going to do the marathon together and, and, and we're, we're hanging out. We, we, we got there. and There's thousands of people everywhere and 10 minutes before the race, he goes, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I was like, okay. Never saw him again. Ran all 26.2 miles by myself. It wasn't because he, he, we couldn't find each other. There was just too many people. And I was so frustrated that I had to run it by myself because I didn't want to run it by myself. We weren't meant to run the race by ourselves. One of the main things the enemy wants to do when he brings tribulation is to isolate you, to bring you away, to bring you and make you feel alone. And one of the primary things Jesus is trying to encourage his church with in the letter to Smyrna is that they are not alone. They're not alone. Look at verse 8. You might want to underline this one. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are Jesus' words, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now stop right there. Jesus is describing himself in this moment as two things. The first and the last, which is protos and eschatos. The first and the last, he's also describing himself as the one who died and came to life. Now why is he describing himself like that? First of all, first and the last is a direct relation to his deity. It means he's God. He has always been, he always will be. If you don't believe me, read Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is God. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is all-powerful. He is God. And therefore, not only is he capable of understanding their situation, he's capable of getting them through their situation. But that's not all that he says. Because Jesus is not only God, he is also what? The God-man. Not only is he the first and last, he is also the one who died and came back to life. He's the God-man. Look at verse 9. I know, he says, your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. When Jesus says, I know your tribulation, he's not just saying... I'm God, so I'm aware of it up here. He's saying, I know it because I've done it. I know it intimately. Jesus related to their humanity because he was a human and brought his humanity with him when he went to to heaven. He relates to their tribulation, their squeezing, their pressing because he was the man of sorrows. He relates to their rejection because he was rejected by his own people. He wept tears on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem remembering and knowing that they were going to reject him. The source of life for all humanity. He relates to their poverty because he told his disciples I'm homeless. You want to come with me? We're living under a bridge. He related to the slander because he was mocked and spat on and rejected. So when Jesus in this moment is encouraging Smyrna, he's not just saying, hey, I'm God, so I'm sovereign, so I know that you're suffering. He's saying, I know it. I've been there. I've done it. I suffered before you suffered. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, 14 says, since then we have a great high priest, speaking of Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer of Hebrews there is declaring that Jesus can relate with every struggle and weakness and tribulation that we ever feel because he's felt it himself. It makes him a good high priest. For that reason, we draw near to him. But the beauty of what Jesus is getting at here is more than just that he can relate. It's more than just that he is God and that he is aware of their suffering. He's communicating something even deeper here. What he is communicating is not only that he suffered as well, but that he suffered first in order to take the hill. You know, there is a big difference between those that showed up at Normandy Beach first and those that showed up later. They both showed up. But one of them showed up to hell on earth and the others showed up to victory. Some were able to take the beach because the beach had already been taken. What Jesus is saying here in drawing the church of Smyrna's attention to his death and resurrection is that he has been victorious first. He's taken the field. This whole death thing that you guys are facing, he's like, I already did it so that you will be victorious. It's incredibly encouraging. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Why don't you turn there really quick for me? Just to the left. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's referring to all of the saints who have lived before us out of faith, who are now watching, like filling the stadium, watching us run our faith race. He says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance, hoopamene, to bear up under the race that is set before us. Now listen to this looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith now that word founder i don't think founder is the strongest way to describe it the word founder is actually the greek word archagos it can be translated originator author champion i like champion the champion of our faith He says, the champion and perfecter of... Now, if you have an ESV Bible, it's translated of our faith. But I actually think the best translation of that is not of our faith, but of faith. Jesus is the champion of faith. He was the first one to do it perfectly. To live a life of faith. To take the mountain. To conquer the hill. He did it. He's our champion. And because he did it, now we follow in his footsteps... Consider him who endured from sinners, it goes on, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing Jesus is saying. He's saying if you're feeling discouraged with tribulation, remember that Christ took the hill. He is our champion of faith. He ran the race perfectly. We follow in his footsteps. I remember going snowshoeing, snowshoe backpacking with my father-in-law years ago. We'd never done it before. And we went out, it was like three feet of powder. And we decided to go somewhere where there was no trail. I don't know if you guys have ever done snowshoeing before, but it's not exactly easy. You're not floating above the snow like you would imagine, right? You're sinking in just enough to where every time you lift up your snowshoe, you're picking up snow with you. And we were dragging these polk sleds full of all of our junk and all of this wood and water and whatever, and we're going to try to get in there and camp for the night. And we realized that every step was terrible, unless you were the one... Behind the guy in front. <laughs> because he was breaking the trail. And so we, did, we took turns. Like, all right, we're going to take turns breaking the trail. The good news that Jesus brings to the church of Smyrna is you're not breaking trail here. You are not the first to suffer. It's not up to you to be victorious. You already are victorious. You already are more than conquerors. He broke the trail. You just walk in his wake. You walk in his path. You walk behind him. You know, I don't know what you guys. I I think about it all the time. You know, would I be faithful? Someone held a gun in my head and said, "Deny Christ." What would I do? The reality is, is that Jesus already did it, and Jesus already lives within me and has empowered me with that strength to do as He did. The Holy Spirit is within me. He's already broken the trail. We're following in His victory. There's a little bit more to this too, though. There's a little bit more to this. Tribulation and persecution also bring us into the fellowship and the community of Christ's suffering. There is a community to the suffering of Christ. Did you know that? There's a community to it. There's a a fellowship of it. 1 Peter chapter 4. I won't have you turn there, but just listen. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter, the apostle, writing to a persecuted church in Asia Minor... Very possible that 1 Peter was circulated through Smyrna as well. 1 Peter 4:12 says, "Beloved, do not be surprised with fiery tr- or surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you." Instead, he says, "But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering." That word share, you're familiar with it. It's called koinonia. It's community, fellowship. Rejoice that you are counted worthy to be part of the fellowship of Christ's cup or Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when in his glory. Isn't it incredible that the Bible actually makes the claim that not only will you suffer well in Christ, but you will actually rejoice in your suffering? That just seems ridiculous. But it's because of this connection to this fellowship of Christ's suffering. It's the same thing we see in Acts chapter 5 after the disciples gotten beat up like they did all the time and and, and arrested. And then in chapter 5 41, it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for his name. What is that all about? How are they rejoicing that they just got beat up? Because they were counted worthy, it says. To suffer, they were counted worthy to be part of the fellowship, the koinonia of Christ's suffering, to carry the cross He carried. There's no other explanation. Theologians refer to this as, I'm waiting to remember this word, cruciformity, or cruciform. Cruciform is when something takes the shape of the cross. Our lives as Christians, at some point, will take the shape of the cross. The suffering of Christ. We live in cruciformity so that we can live in Christiformity, which is his life being formed in us. We take his cross so that his life can be formed in us. We walk in his steps. Stephen, when he was stoned, had some miraculous ability to do exactly like Jesus did, to forgive those who were killing him. He walked in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Jesus invited Paul into this fellowship. Do you remember? Paul was killing Christians, and then Jesus stopped him in his tracks. And he said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And then he says, now you're mine, buddy. (laughs) I'll show you how much you have to suffer for me. And then what does Paul say when he writes his letters? He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. In other words, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. He wore that like a badge. I am, a, I am part of the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And I count it all joy. To be counted worthy to carry the cross that Christ carried. That's why Polycarp said, As he was about to be burned, I give thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. Polycarp got that. He understood that. There's a fellowship to that. There's deep comfort available to those facing tribulation. I believe this is what Tolkien was trying to get at when he wrote the book, The Fellowship of the Ring. Fellowship of the Ring. The idea that this ring was a burden. It was a weight. And that weight was not designed to be carried only by one. It was designed to be carried by a group. And there was a fellowship, a union, a bond between them because they carried the weight together. And this is what the church is designed to be. We're designed to carry weight together. We're designed to carry each other's burdens. You know, I, I have to say this. The book of Revelation was not written to individuals. It was written to churches. And the letter to Smyrna, although you could sit with your coffee in the morning and say, Lord, what is this saying to me? And that's, that's important. This was a letter written to a church, a group of people. And Jesus speaks to that church as though it's one organism. You were meant to share in the fellowship of Christ suffering together. To struggle together, to carry each other's burdens, to say, How can we do this together? And Jesus' encouragement is that I am in this with you. I've done it before you, I've made the way for you, and you are now connected to something that I've done. This is not a masochistic desire for pain, by the way. This isn't like somebody rolls up with a gun and you say, Hey, I want to suffer for Christ. That's not what this is saying. This is Simon the Cyrene who's just sitting there watching this Jesus carry the cross and instantly a Roman guard says, you, carry that cross for him. And Simon the Cyrene, not even really fully understanding what's going on, goes and he carries the cross of Christ, the fellowship of Christ's suffering. It was an honor, it was a privilege to do so. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, how wonderful that when we are blinded by tears, we can nevertheless see our God. In fact, our tears become crystal lenses through which he is magnified. And in the midst of suffering, we realize the greatness of his power and tenderness of his love. Did you know that tribulation brings revelation? Tribulation brings revelation. Stephen standing there about to be murdered, it was in that moment that he saw Christ in the heavens, wasn't it? Because tribulation gets everything out of the way. It brings everything into clarity. Just just a quick pastoral word here. I think that we need to reshape the way we think about persecution and suffering and tribulation in the West. I think we think more about how to avoid it than we do about how to prepare for it. I think our obsession with the pre-tribulation rapture, which could be true, is unhealthy because all it gets us thinking is, oh, but I'm going to escape. I'm not going to be here. I'll be on a divine honeymoon, no worries. You're not promised that. You may go through the tribulation. Will Christ preserve you? Absolutely. Did you know, listen to me, 100,000 Christians are murdered every year for their faith. Did you know that? Do you think it's possible that you may be asked to suffer for Christ? Are you ready for that? I'm not trying to scare you. Are you ready for that? Don't hang all your weight on the idea that you're going to get raptured out of here before you have to go through anything hard. As Christians, we should be prepared. How do we prepare is the question. John Piper says, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. (laughs) I don't want to be a Christian that's so focused on health, wealth, prosperity, and escapism that when struggle comes, I can't face it. I want to be a Christian with grit that has deep roots into the gospel of Jesus Christ, ready to forsake all for him. So Bible-saturated and Holy Spirit-filled that whatever happens, we're holding on to our champion of faith. Amen? By the way, there's nothing wrong with pre-tribulation rapture. I'm hoping for that too. Okay, just just, just so you know. There's one more counterintuitive reality that I want you to see here. Christ says to the church in Smyrna in verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. The counterintuitive reality is this, the destruction of our exterior life actually reveals the craftsmanship of our interior life. I'll say that again. The destruction of our exterior life reveals the craftsmanship of our interior life. So Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, you're going to be thrown into prison for a period of 10 days by the devil in order to be what? Tested. Okay? But who's doing the testing? Is it the devil? No. The devil is attempting to do the destroying. If I'm forging a a sword in the fire... Okay, is the fire doing the forging or am I doing the forging? I'm the master craftsman, right? So I'm using the fire in order to accomplish my purposes. And the same way Christ is forging, testing his church, and he's doing it through the mechanism of the enemy's desire to destroy us. Fire has an amazing effect on something that cannot ultimately be burned. 1 Peter talks about this. It says, 1 Peter 1, 6, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Listen, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found in result, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The picture that Peter is pointing here is, is that when you tribulate, <laughs> when you go through tribulation, you and your faith is like a metallic gold. It can't be burnt. All it does is force the impurities to rise to the surface so that they might be wiped off the top. You've probably heard this before, but it's it's worth noticing. It says in 1 Peter 1 6 that we that more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says when he appears, we will what? Look like him. The craftsman who's purifying gold, when the impurities are purified all the way out, he knows it's done because he can see his reflection in the gold. When Jesus comes, he's going to he's know that the, that the testing is done because he's going to see himself in us. <laughs> but what I want you to see here is I want you to see that there is a difference between testing. There's a difference between testing to check quality and testing to reveal quality. And I would say that the testing that the Lord does is the latter. He's not trying to check to see if we're faithful. He's testing to show and reveal the craftsmanship of what he's done inside you. Isn't that cool? It's what Paul's getting at when he says we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, the more beat up and broken and shattered the clay vessel becomes, the more it shows the value of what lies within it. Now listen, there's no mistake here that the church of Smyrna is one of only two churches that receives zero rebuke. There's no rebuke for the church of Smyrna. Isn't that interesting? Why is there no rebuke? because they've been purified what have they been purified through tribulation suffering struggle it has burned the impurities these poor Christians who probably cannot even get a job are passionate and hungry for Christ and so aware of his riches they've been purified why do we refrigerate food because bacteria won't live in a certain temperature why do we cook food Because bacteria won't live in a certain temperature. Why does Christ purify his church through fire? To get rid of the impurities. I don't like struggle. I don't like tribulation. I don't like hardship. But make no mistake, the churches in the seven letters that receive the severest rebukes are the richest and the most comfortable and the most affluent churches. The churches that that receive the littlest rebuke are the poorest and those who've seen the most hardship. So that's a warning to us because we've been blessed with comfort, haven't we? Guys, I, I don't work here anymore, so I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> I keep bumping into people all over town. Hey, how's it going? You, uh, you going back to church? Uh we'll get there. It's been like two months. What's stopping you? Ah, we just, we'll watch the live stream. Well, we've watched it once. Okay? I'm not, I'm not saying this is like two, I'm talking like six, seven, eight, nine people. And it's starting to concern me. It's starting to concern me because I don't think Christians are really taking seriously the importance of being together. And I think tribulation is coming. And we need each other more than ever right now. I think what the enemy is meant for evil, which is coronavirus, God is going to use for good. Christians need to get back with each other. And live stream is not church. just not. I'm not speaking to those that are concerned or worried about the virus. I'm speaking to those that have no reason not to be here other than the fact that they just wanted to go to breakfast Sunday morning. You need each other. Things are going to get hard. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm not even prophesying. I'm just telling you. Things are going to get hard in this country. Anybody with two eyes can see that. Jesus is preparing his purified church for more purification. He's preparing his persecuted church for more persecution. Because what he's doing in them is the value. What he's purifying in them is the value. See, in the West, we just think about what God wants to do through us. But what Christ is thinking about is what he wants to do in us. We think about how big is our ministry, how big is my platform, how big is my influence. And Jesus says, I don't care about any of that. I care about the purity of the faith that is within you. Suffering and persecution and tribulation may be the best thing the American church ever sees because it's going to make us start thinking about what's important. So what can actually prepare us to go through tribulation well? And the answer is in verse 10. Jesus ends his letter to Smyrna by saying, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. What's he talking about here? This isn't a crown of a king. This isn't a crown of a prince. This is a crown of a victorious athlete. This is the crown that the Christians in Smyrna would have seen people wearing around who were athletes, who were, um, you know, had won different things. This is a crown that a Christian in Smyrna would never get to wear because they were the refuse of their society. And Jesus said, be faithful to me unto death and I will give you a crown. The crown. The crown. It's his affirmation. You know, there's only one thing that really makes you change in life. There's only one thing that makes you really perse- persevere. You know what it is? It's not grit, it's not determination, it's not discipline, it's not religion. It's a desire to please the Lord. That is the only true driving force of real change in your life. Jesus is saying, stay faithful may cost you your life, may cost you your job, may cost you your comfort, but it will bring a crown of life, the affirmation of myself," Jesus would say. "The fear of man is a trap. There's freedom in desiring the affirmation of Christ in Christ alone. But there's more than just this affirmation. It's the crown of life," he says, the crown of life. And then in verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? The second death is hell. I like Rick Boya. He says, the question is not if there is life after death, but if there is death after life. Everyone's going to have life after death. The question is, will you have death after death? Is the last heartbeat that you have the first breath you breathe in hell? Or is the last heartbeat that you have the first breath that you live in Christ's eternal life? And Jesus is saying the reward for faithfulness is eternal life, the crown of eternal life. I can't help but picture it in my head when you look at the word tribulation, the squeezing, the pressure, the uncomfortableness of it. Uh, You know what I think about? Maybe it's because I've had three kids. I think about my little babies when they hit nine months in the womb. Things were just getting tight in there, man. Man pressure and then those contractions start. These contractions make the baby go, okay I want out of here I know it's warm in here but I want out. Without the contractions the baby doesn't want out right? Without the tightness, without the squeeze, without the uncomfortability the baby doesn't want out and that's exactly what Christ does in us. You know Christian maturity is growing out of this world and growing into the next one and the more uncomfortable you are here the more excited you are to go there It's contractions. This tribulation is getting them somewhere. So how do we tribulate well? By remembering, falling more in love with Jesus and being more aware of his promises and his work and his reward and his resurrection life and his victory than anything that the news and anything that the world and anything around us is saying right now. And some of us need to hear that. We need to tune out of everything the world is saying, and tune into what our pastor is saying. Jesus, our pastor, the only lead pastor, Jesus, the Christ, who cares about us infinitely. Tune into his words, so that like Polycarp, we can say, too, Leave me as I am, for he that giveth me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing by the nails to remain without moving in the pile. And listen to Polycarp's prayer right before he was lit on fire. He says, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have part in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of thy Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost, among whom may I have be accepted this day before thee as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as thou the ever-truthful God has foreordained has revealed beforehand to me and now has fulfilled. Wherefore, I also bless thee for all things. This is, this is right before he's about to get burned. <laughs> okay? I bless thee, Lord, for all things. I bless thee. I glorify thee along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. I cannot... Imagine a world in which Polycarp was not standing there remembering the letter of Smyrna. I can't, I, he would have remembered it clear as day. He would have been probably rehearsing the words of Christ to his church that he pastored in Smyrna as he's watching the flame come towards him. And I can imagine him sitting there thinking to himself, Jesus' words, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who died came to life. I'm with you. Be faithful unto the end and I will give you a crown of life. There will be no second death for you. Polycarp breathes in the grace of God, takes his last breath on this earth, only to take his first breath in his truest and most eternal life with Jesus. We're all going to do that one day. It may not be in a big Epic martyrdom, but we're all going to take our last breath. Jesus, thank you so much that you overcame, that you have conquered, that you are victorious, that you have won. Thank you, Jesus, that you know of our struggles, you know our tribulation. Not only are you aware of it, but you've experienced it yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being counted worthy to enter into the fellowship of your suffering, to drink of the cup you drink of, to live for your glory and your honor, Lord Jesus. Make us strong, not in our own strength, but make us strong in our faith. Purify our faith like gold, Lord, that we might serve and honor you in all things. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen.